Hey, how's it going, Mike? I'm Zach, and you have just entered the Wicked Gate. Beware. This is hopefully uh, the first uh, of many uh, of the Wicked Gate podcast. Uh, the desire behind uh, the podcast to kind of create a platform where we could talk about uh, the struggles of walking uh, through uh, a faithful Christian life and a struggle uh, it most certainly uh, is. And so that's kind of what we long for uh, this space uh, to be. Uh, me and Zach uh, have had these conversations uh, for, man, Nine years. Yes, nine years are just kind of crazy. <laughs> We're about to reach a decade. Uh, and so that's pretty awesome. And almost every time after I have these conversations, I'll go back home. I'll be like, Jamie, man, my life just got changed. I need to love Jesus more. It was so good. I just felt like I learned something new. And then she'd ask me, well, what do you guys talk about? And I try to explain it, and it was always really horrible, and she didn't understand it, and I was like the, and then he said, and then I said, and then we looked at the word, and yeah, it was never actually uh, what I hoped it to be. It's, it's always <laughs> real difficult to replicate those things. <laughs> yeah. There's something about being in the moment and being able to walk through those conversations intimately together. So that's the hope with this, is that uh, there's nothing uh, terribly special about Mike and I's conversations together. Uh, they are deeply enjoyable. They've been deeply forming for, for me, and I believe for both of us, but the the, the hope is is that uh, we can have these conversations with one another, but allow others into those conversations as well. And our prayer is is that they will be used to be edifying to our church home here in, in Columbus, Ohio, the Village Church Columbus, uh, and then whoever may dare or by God's grace would uh, would listen to us beyond uh, our own church family, and that's really where the wicked gate title even comes from for us is uh, John Bunyan's classic, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. That wicked gate is the entry point to the journey of the Christian faith. That's, uh, that's where the main character uh, in the Pilgrim's Progress comes to know uh, the saving power of Jesus Christ. Uh, he walks through that gate and the journey begins. And uh, that, uh, that, that has been a large part of Mike and I's relationship, even though there's uh, a, a significant gap in age uh, between us. Uh, we, we've been able to walk uh, this Christian life together for, for a, a period of time now by God's grace. And uh, it has been adventurous at times, uh, certainly, difficult at times, certainly, uh, but almost consistently along the way, been filled with lots and lots of joy uh, because of who our, our Lord and Savior is and, and who God has continually shown himself to be for us. Yeah. And 2020 uh, will uh, kind of bring you to your knees uh, as uh, just a normal person, but uh, most assuredly uh, for Christians. And so kind of as we talk, what we really long for is to have conversations uh, that contextually are first for uh, our listeners here at the church uh, and then continually uh, try to push it outwards uh, to Christians in general. And so what I want to do first is I kind of want to take a look back all right. And so we've been together for nine years, been in ministry for nine years. I just kind of want to look back at kind of the history of the church, what we've been doing for some time uh, and kind of just talk through that to create uh, con context for people who are on the outside uh, and then kind of uh, begin to push forward to a little more conversation about kind of faithful living and, and life uh, and the Bible. And so uh, almost a decade gone, uh, kind of looking back uh, over uh, the past nine years, Zach, do you remember uh, this? I didn't put this on the paper, so this, this is a surprise for you. Off script. Yeah. <laughs> we're five minutes in and we're yeah. off script. Yeah. So do you remember uh, what you, the sermon where you felt like their lives might have just been changed? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish I could remember that sermon. Uh, I, I don't know that I can pinpoint uh, a sermon I what I recall from those early days, so just for some broader context, Mike and I, we are all about the local church. That's, uh, that's the call that God has put in front of us and the call that God laid on, on my heart along with a few other guys, our elders here, uh, about uh, 10 and a half years ago was to plant uh, a gospel-centered, Bible-rich, reformed church in an urban neighborhood of Columbus. And by God's grace, that's what we were able to do just over nine years ago. 
And we started preaching through Genesis, or no, sorry, we're preaching through Genesis now. We started preaching through Ephesians right right out of the gate. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was like who I leaned on heavy at that time. And Martin Lloyd-Jones preached through Ephesians over like a five-year period. So I thought I had to try to be Martin Lloyd-Jones. So I remember just preaching, like I would just take a half of a verse and I'd preach a a 50 or 55-minute, sometimes maybe longer sermon. Uh, to like eight people uh, sitting out, <laughs> sitting out in, the, in the church. So I, I don't know that any of those early sermons, I felt like these were life, life-changing life sermons. Uh, but again, uh, hopefully by God's grace, uh, he, he used some of those, uh, th- those uh, what were attempts to be faithful to the word, uh, to, to, to grow us up in him early on. I think that those initial years for us were really for us, um, because that's really all who, that's all God had here. <laughs> God didn't have too many folks outside of our core core group of folks here yeah. over those first couple of years. And I think uh, the the teaching and preaching that happened over that time, the community that happened over that time, the the formation in terms of who who our identity was going to be as a local church. So much of that was for us. Like God was using that to shape and to form us and to kind of chisel away our pride uh, and my faulty expectations that just because a new church was coming into a neighborhood, well, then surely folks are going to come to that new church. Uh, and to, to really push us to full-on commitment to, to him. Uh, so, um, so I think that's particularly as I think about that Ephesians series right out of the gate. That, that's what that Ephesians series did for me. Was, was teach me through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus that everything is God's doing and full reliance must be on him. Uh, so even as I just think about Ephesians 1 and 2, those first two powerful chapters of that letter, uh, the, the reliance that we are called to have on God for the spiritual blessings that he pours out for, our, uh, for the faith that we've been given uh, in Christ, uh, that the rejoicing that we are supposed to have as followers of Christ. So like those two chapters, as I reflect on the study of that, that was a lot of that I think was for me Uh, and uh, beginning to work away a lot of my immaturity in the faith and uh, thinking that I was uh, the, uh, the, the, maybe I wasn't the prince of preachers, but maybe I was the duke of of, of preachers. Uh, And uh, God really showing me over that time that, full reliance needed to be, be placed in him. And, um, yeah, so it'd be interesting. I haven't gone back and listened to those sermons yeah. in a long time. Uh, so it'd be interesting to, to, to go back to an Ephesians sermon from eight and a half years ago and just listen and see. And cringe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, think, <laughs> I think there would be some cringing for sure. Yeah, it's funny. I think as, as I think about uh, impactful sermon series, I think about the Matthew series. Particularly, I think it was like right in the middle of the book of Matthew uh, as Jesus is kind of going back and forth uh, with um, the Pharisees. The whole concept of the fear of man versus the fear of God began to like continually come up over uh, and over and over again. And I think just as you talked about, uh, I think the, the shaping uh, that God's word has, particularly for us uh, as a group, even in that series, that was the first series uh, that I think I fully kind of went through uh, at the church. And for me, that was huge, trying to not only uh, preach the word, um, but then also then take it outside of the church walls and then live it out amongst people. That's so often kind of this constant pressure from the world around you of what Christians should be, and then trying to repackage Christianity for them and what uh, what I was hoping would be kind of a better package than what God had intended, figuring out that that's unfaithful and that that's faulty. Uh, and then kind of coming back to the fact that I had feared man who could do nothing really to me rather than fearing God who had complete control and sovereignty over. I think those sermons for me uh, were extremely uh, impactful and uh, were shaping uh, and kind of uh, throughout the time in the, in the little preaching that I've done, I've constantly seen kind of weaknesses within myself come up. And so I, I don't know about you, but there are times where if I get an opportunity to preach kind of multiple times in a row, there is always something that's like a hot button thing for me that rises up and almost like weakens me at the knees where I'm like, 
bro, I probably shouldn't preach this Sunday. Like, I might want to just take this one off, like pass this one uh, over to somebody else. Are there places where kind of as you're preaching kind of through the different series, you've seen kind of weaknesses within yourself or weaknesses within the church kind of uh, pop up? What were those? Kind of how did you deal with those and kind of navigate through those? Yeah, I think uh, one of the one of the first weaknesses that always comes to mind when I think about the weaknesses that I've caused uh, this church to inherit because of me uh, is 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 a failure to rightly apply God's word to our lives. Uh, not that there's been complete failure there; uh, it certainly hasn't been the case uh, because of God's graciousness to me. But I'm a doctrine guy. I love doctrine. I love theology. I love expositorily walking through God's Word. Uh, and I love to read. So uh, the, the convalescence of all of those things together right, oftentimes causes me to be someone that doesn't make my doctrine and theology practical. And I know that that was the case early on. That, that one of the reasons that I wanted to go through Ephesians early on was because you get to dive into so many of the pillar doctrines of the Reformed faith. That, and that happens from the jump. I mean, I'm talking from the jump. Like, you get past the intro, and like one of Paul's first words to the church in Ephesus is predestination. <laughs> uh, so it's like, all right, like we are a Reformed church in the urban uh, core of Columbus, Ohio. Here we go. Like, we are, I'm going to let folks know who we are as a church. And we're going to walk through these spiritual blessings that Paul talks about. And I know if we went back and listened that there would be a severe lack of, uh, of showing the practical nature of the outworkings of the, those beautiful doctrines of grace. Man, th- theologically, from a teaching standpoint, you want to help people understand and grasp, but it just becomes so weighty that if you don't do it correctly, there's not a pastoral care that comes in to help people figure out how do you then carry the weight well and apply that way yeah, well. Yeah, 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 that's exactly right. You, uh, there's this twofold nature to preaching, right? That there's a difference between preaching and teaching. Right? As uh, as you know, I, I work in a Christian school as well. There's a major difference between teaching in a classroom right? and and preaching on Sunday nights. There is that kind of twofold pastoral role where you're trying to inform, right? You, you're trying to help the church that God has called you to be an under-shepherd over, to, to learn and, and grow in an understanding of who God is. Right? But you're also trying to push uh, us collectively towards holiness, right? towards obedience to God's word. And if, and if I fail or any of us fail who are preaching God's word to take doctrine and help folks understand how that connects to life, well, then all we've done is created some type of intellectual assent to something that actually is just going to crash and burn for them at some point because they're, they're, they're raucous living over here and their high thinking on the other side uh, is, is never going to be aligned. And that, that's something that I know that God has worked on in me, in my own heart, in my own mind over the past 20 years of, of knowing the Lord, uh, I just I even reflect as I say that about like seminary. So I, didn't, I went to a seminary that was a fairly progressive seminary, and I was kind of the, the reform zealot uh, conservative in the room. And uh, I remember taking great pride in that and wanting to be heard as often as I, uh, as I thought I needed to be heard. And uh, the, the, the connection between what I believed and, and how I was loving people around me and trying to walk out uh, what I said that I believed was definitely lacking. And I know I brought some of that into the early years of our church. So I think that's a weakness that, uh, that I think uh, in those early years of the church I had to undergo a lot of refining. And, and God has, has graciously seen us through that. And, and I hope God is continuing to refine that, that the practical nature of what we're, what we're preaching in this place is is always going to be helpful to, to the people who are who God brings to this place. So so that's one of the weaknesses that I thought about right away. Uh, and then I think this is kind of a no brainer on some level. But I have no history of church planning. Church planning was brand 
brand new. I'd never wanted to do it. Didn't know anything about it. That's um, that's all I've done. Yeah, that's that's your, that's your only. History. Yeah, so, so so that's nice uh, for, for for you when that time comes to plant another uh, another community. Um, but I had such an ignorant understanding of what it looked like, and well, I don't know that I would have ever answered this on a test, or if someone asked me, I wouldn't have verbalized this. But in my own heart and mind, I definitely believe that if you're talented enough, then your church is going to boom and. Uh, as as I've already mentioned, that has not been our story. <laughs> yeah. Right, that hasn't been the story at uh, the Village Church Columbus, and uh, and so complete reliance on God, I think, was lacking in, in the early years of our church. Uh, there was a lot that I tried to do through hard work and reading and strategizing and uh, just human effort that just God wasn't going to bless it. Right, and I'm thankful that He didn't. Uh, in those th- those early years, looking back now on where we are, nine years in, I'm thankful that he didn't bless those prideful efforts uh, in, in the early years of uh, of trying to do a lot myself and really believing that the, the success or failure, uh, not even the, the the health of this church, that would have been a more holy thought. Uh, the, the success or the failure of this church was so reliant on me. And, uh, and God just kind of scrubbing that uh, intensely over the first several years of our church as I would get up on a Sunday and look out in a room that holds 150 people and see 12 people in the room and how healthy that was uh, for, for an arrogant 30-year-old who was, who was starting a church that he thought would just kind of take off and, and move. And uh, yeah, I'm sure that our church took on some of those weaknesses in the early years of just kind of like feet to the ground effort. Like, let's just, like, like, like let's get our knees dirty. Let's get our hands dirty. Let's rub them raw by how much work we're going to do to try to ensure that this thing is established. And it didn't work. Yeah. And again, that, it's not just lip service. That was God's grace. Yeah. That, 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 that those things didn't work. And that the pride that I brought into this place, and, and then I'm sure that our church took on some of that in, in the early years. And I hope that we, we, have, we have put those things behind us. Um, it's funny because that it makes me think of constantly in our conversation, themes keep coming up over and over and over again, uh, whether it is in our discipleship conversations, whether we're talking about ministry and implementation uh, of uh, certain practices or certain ministries um, or services and things like that. And it's funny because as you speak, I think to myself that as someone that, that has sat uh, in the congregation for a number of years, I found myself in that place where it's like, Oh man, I'm just gonna work extremely, extremely hard, right? So I'm I'm gonna follow the law. I'm gonna do as much as possible. And then I found myself in a place where like oh, I'm gonna cruise control this sucker. Like there's grace. It's all it's all good. Like God loves me. Like everything's gonna be okay in the end. Like he he's gonna care for me. His will always comes about. So like if he longs for us to <laughs> multiply and for people to be saved, it's gonna happen. Like who cares if I lift a finger? Like I have no duty in this thing. I don't want to get lost in the law. And so I I, I see kind of that. That struggle, and this is why I think the the wicked gate imagery is so uh, apt and so necessary, because that is the reality of Christian life: is that you find yourself in these seasons where it's like, man, I've seen laziness in my own life, and so what I want to do is I want to change it, and so then you overcorrect on one side, and like, so I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to be the best Christian I possibly can be. I'm going to do everything that God has told me to do, and He's going to be so pleased for it when He's just been saying, "Hey, stop! Look at me." Uh, envelop me, drink in me, love me, l- see what I'm going to do for you, lean on me, uh, and all you want to do is work. Yeah. Uh, and so, Well, that's the irony of what I, even what I just said. So we preach through Ephesians right out of the gate. There might be no two chapters back to back in the New Testament that should more clearly show us right, that it's complete reliance on God. Right? Maybe you've got Romans 8 and 9. Uh, side by side with Ephesians one and two, uh, and this is what I wanted. To, this is what we should have been saturating uh, in over those those first couple years of the village, and and that's what I would have been preaching and, and communicating to our folks. Yet my heart was 
was was doing something different. And I do think there is always that danger in us of the overcorrections one way or the other. We don't want to be the the farmer who sits on his porch and just assumes things are going to grow. Like if God wants corn to shoot up, then God's going to shoot some corn up. Like, no, there's work for us to do. Right? But as soon as we begin believing that that work is what produces success uh, or, or holds back success, and uh, we begin to think that it's something about our own strength that pushes those things forward, that's, that's where we fall into a trap that, that becomes very dangerous for us as leaders uh, in the church. And then to, to functionally then show that to the church uh, becomes very dangerous as well. Right? I, I, I long for the, the Village Church Columbus to see in us a complete reliance on God and a zealous working uh, to fulfill what he's put in front of us, right? We, we, we want both of those things to walk hand in hand, that, that we aren't working for our own glory, that, that, that nothing here is dependent on us. God could uproot me out of this place tomorrow, and, and, and he could graciously uh, and powerfully uh, move the village church forward, that it's not dependent on us, yet he has given us work to do. And, and I think that's the other thing that I think about in terms of uh, maybe going back to the practical piece a little bit, but is the pursuit of holiness. And I think you, you mentioned law and grace. This has been the great tension of, uh, of theology and church history for, for centuries and particularly within the Reformed Church, the tension between law and grace can sometimes be so pronounced that we, we might not even want to use the word holiness for fear that folks would accuse us of perfectionism right? or, or, or folks would, uh, would think that somehow we're talking about working for our salvation. Yet just as we would tell folks who aren't in the Reformed circle, you can't avoid predestination. It's in Scripture all over the place. Everywhere you turn, you see God's sovereignty over salvation, we also see the call to holiness everywhere in Scripture as well. And the, the understanding of the doctrines of grace and God's complete sovereignty over salvation is not at odds with personal holiness. In fact, it's what fuels it. And I don't know that that, that was always a, a major message at the Village Church. So you know, as I think about weaknesses in me, in my own heart, in my own mind, and things that I've wrestled through, and, and what God's been growing in me over, over the past 10 years of, of having this, this church plant as a, as a vision and a call before me. That, that holiness idea has definitely been a piece of it. I, you mentioned this with Matthew. I remember this from Ephesians even early on, being challenged with the idea that as Christians, we often want to be seen as not crazy. Right? That, that, that we know those crazy preachers on TV or you, you walk on the Oval at Ohio State's campus and you got guys standing on stoops like screaming at people as they walk by. And, uh, like, like as followers of Christ, we, we, we want to distance ourselves from, from those things. Uh, and so much so that we want to be considered cool by the world, except that we've got this other piece of us that loves Jesus. Right? So like, yeah, this dude loves Jesus, but he looks just like me. He even talks just like me. He watches the same things that I watch. He listens to the same, same things that I listen to. He hangs out in the same places that I hang out. Right? And that, that, that was definitely a big desire of mine and something that, that, that I definitely would have encouraged in our folks early on in the life of the church was, hey, be a normal Christian. Right? I, I remember you, like, don't be a, a, a crazy, like, like against the wall, like outlandish, like just be normal, like be, like it's okay, like integrate a little bit into the world. And then you come to this idea of holiness, which at the foundation means to be set apart, right? Means to be a distinct people. So right? you've been telling people, be a little unholy. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> like, like uh, don't, don't take holiness too seriously. Yeah. Don't take it so seriously that it starts making you crazy. But the reality is if we look at the, the men of Scripture, these men of faith that God has put before us, whoever it is, right? Whether it's as we study Genesis right now and we see Abraham or we're about getting ready to start studying the life of Joseph or you look at Moses or David or into the New Testament and guys like John the Baptist and Paul. Like, these guys were way closer to street preachers than they were to folks 
like casually hanging out in Starbucks and local bars, throwing darts with people, um, like hoping that a spiritual conversation may come up. Yeah. Right? So uh, while I'm still not like calling any of us to go scream at people on street corners, there is a reality with the, our pursuit of holiness that that this desire to be a cool Christian that has kind of become an infatuation within Christian circles uh, over the last couple of decades is really folly, right? It's, it, it's, it's the pursuit of something that doesn't actually exist, right? To, to be cool is to be accepted. To be cool is to be a part of the larger culture. And that's, that's never what we're called to be. We are called to invest in the world and to chase after those who are in the world. Uh, but, but we are not ever called to be thought of as cool in the world or accepted by the world. In fact, Jesus promises the exact opposite, that, that if we bear his name and that we are walking faithfully with him, then that's going to actually have some consequences in terms of our acceptance in, in the culture around us. Uh, so while we want to try to get to know our neighbors and, and speak uh, well to them and, and be a part of their lives, if, if we're not doing that with, with Christ as our guide, then, then there is really nothing that distinguishes us other than maybe we spend an hour or two a week somewhere different than our neighbors do. Yeah, and we've, we've seen this uh, as we've walked through uh, the book of Genesis. And so I, I think as we're talking, all I could think about uh, was Lot and living too close to Sodom. That like like this is this is what it how it starts you know we live a little close to Sodom like it's a little lackadaisical we know where God has told us to be we know the promises that He's given us uh, and so we live close to this place then next thing we know we live inside the city oh that's kind of crazy but we went into the city to transform the city next thing we know we're the head of the city and while things are happening inside the city we're letting some crazy things come through the gates uh, of the city uh, and that last thing we're offering up our daughters <laughs> and like it, it has it has all gone bad and it all started with living too closely uh, to this place uh, where we shouldn't have led so just kind of Thinking about uh, the book of Genesis and kind of where we are, are there other themes that maybe resonate through the life of the church or other themes maybe that you just find uh, to be really significant and that you would hope that people have seen uh, or maybe even theological points that have been really kind of uh, important uh, or foundational that you hope people haven't missed kind of in our time there? Yeah, yeah. So it's been such a blessing to go through Genesis. We're, we're almost at two years uh, in our study of Genesis. And... Uh, just doing chapter 36 this week. Uh, it's, it's been so, so good and helpful for me personally. And I know from talking to, to our folks that for, for many of them, it's been, uh, been a real blessing as well. Uh, as I think about things that I would hope our folks have, have, have seen consistently in our study of the book of Genesis would be first that the promises of God do not waver, that God fulfills his promises that the faithfulness of God, the steadfastness of our God in the midst of a corrupt people, uh, the, the, the failures that we see of, of man in Genesis are pronounced. Right? Moses ensures that you can't read Genesis and walk away thinking that man is good. Right? That, that, that every major character that we are introduced to in the book of Genesis from a human standpoint is deeply flawed and, and makes significant mistakes. Yet God makes promises, right? And doesn't waver on those promises. The, the, the faithfulness and consistency of who God is and his willingness to stand beside those people that he has chosen to be his own, uh, despite their willingness to whore themselves out to anyone at, at times who will listen to them, uh, is, is astounding. Right? that, that, that uh, God's promises are steadfast. Uh, that begins with Adam and Eve, right? immediately after the fall, immediately after they've chosen to try to overthrow God, to, to send him off of his throne so that they could assume that throne. God's the one that pursues them, right? and not only to discipline, certainly to discipline, justly discipline. But to, but to offer the, the promise of redemption, right? That, uh, that in the midst of a people who were only wicked all the time, to the point where God was grieved that he made them, 
God's favor rested on Noah and his family, right? That, 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 that God's grace extended to one family, right? And then the promises on the other side of God's outpouring of wrath on mankind, the reestablishing of his promises that he made to Adam and Eve, and then even adding on to those promises with Noah and his family. And then we see the same thing clearly with Abraham, right? a pagan man who was worshiping uh, foreign gods, God graciously calls to himself and establishes these promises that we continue to be benefactors of, right? That we, that we are now uh, sons and daughters of Abraham because of God's faithfulness to his, his promises. Uh, and he establishes those promises not just with Abraham, but with Isaac and then with Jacob. And, and Jacob's story is a crazy one and extends those promises then through Joseph and all the sons of Jacob, the, these, the, the tribes of Israel that will begin to expand like wildfire as the book of Genesis comes to a close. So the, the faithfulness of God in keeping his promises uh, is, is certainly one of those themes that I would hope folks would see. Uh, and then the, the depravity of man. We just preached on this a, a couple of weeks ago explicitly, but that we would see how depraved we are. People, I think, just to correct you, I think people would say we preach on the depravity of man explicitly <laughs> like every week. Yeah. The, 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 there's probably not a week. If you, if you look back at kind of the beginning of that church history, there were probably a ton of people that said, man, the first six months, I felt like all we talked about was our sin. They're like, that, that's it. This All this church ever talked about is the sinfulness of man. Like, I can't get away from this thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not even going to apologize for it. But, <laughs> but, but, but I do want to... Be, be aware that those things always need to come uh, come full circle to the cross. Uh, but, but yeah, that, that I hope our folks would see, as we've studied Genesis, the absolute need that we have uh, for, for a gracious and sovereign God. And, uh, and that should hit home for us so squarely as people here at the village uh, and, and really any of us who, who are trying to walk with the Lord, that our need for... God's grace, his favor, his redemption, uh, his sanctification in us, his, his continued presence alongside of us. Gosh, Genesis just so explicitly shows that to us, that, uh, that, that God would seemingly have every reason in the world to walk away from the people that he has created, but for his promises. Uh, and uh, that any type of success that we see man having in the book of Genesis when we see the faith of Abraham shine, when, when we see the godliness of Jacob at times break through, uh, when, when we see Abraham responding in obedience uh, to God, Genesis, if every one of those terms is connecting it to, to God's empowerment. Which, which is, it's, it, that, I think that for me is shaping and kind of transformative just because I think con in conversation, you know, conversely, we, we talk about the fact that the God of the Old Testament, man, he's so much more judgmental. He's, he he he's heavy, kind of on the judgment and the discipline and the correction. And far uh, less often do we see the grace. But then Jesus comes on the scene, and he is the love and the grace of God for the first time in human history. Yet you can't go throughout the Book of Genesis without being reminded, oh, no, no, it's man that is evil. It's man that longs to judge and to kill. And it's God who, though he does discipline, is always looking to bring man back in order that man can enjoy the promises and blessings that he's given them, which is, I mean, this is the same conversations I have with my son. You know, like when I'm disciplining my son, what I long for him to do is have a greater love and affection for me and have a greater love and affection so much so that when I tell him to do something, he does it right away. That like there's there's a trust there there's a that correction is meant to bring him back to like oh no I should trust your voice because you're the only thing good that I should be listening to I mean I'm not the only how's thing that good. working how's yeah that working? it's not how's that, how's that working it's horrible it's, yeah, it's yeah, no, I think my son might hate me <laughs> <laughs> it is a middle school daughter now who uh, uh, who has all of a sudden sprouted attitude and yeah like. Man, haven't I shown you incredible love and affection over the years and, and steadfastness to you? And obviously then you realize how much you failed in that. And like the, the, the demonic possession that often takes over <laughs> uh, our, our kids' hearts and minds is simply then reflective of what happens in our own hearts and minds. Uh -huh. and, and how my oftentimes 
patience that wavers with, with my kids. And that is, is such a lesson for me of God's unbelievable patience with me uh, as, as someone who is the child in that relationship, the petulant, the, the forgetful, the ungrateful uh, child. But no, you, you're, your analogy is exactly right. It's funny. We were, we were just talking about that last night at community group uh, because I was like, you do think sometimes that like if God would have come and to talk with you or to talk with Abraham or wrestled with Jacob, you're like, it's a done deal. Faithfulness to the end, God. Like, I got you, bro. Like, I wrestle with you. You bless me even more. Like, cool. Like, let's let's do it. You're going to change my name too. God, you got me for the rest of the time. And then some crazy stuff happens and you're like, oh, man, what's the matter with these guys? <laughs> you're like, why would they do this? Like, I thought the whole story would have ended well, but it's that constant reminder that there is one hero uh, in the story, and that's God. Everybody else is a character to show you uh, in kind of a greater picture of how awesome God is uh, and his faithfulness. And those people show that through kind of their uh, their brokenness. Uh, and then in their production of righteousness, you are then reminded, oh, so this is what the goodness of God through obedience then produces within men and women. This is why these people are called heroes of the faith, not because of things of themselves, but because in due time, God's faithfulness always wins out in the people who he has called to himself. And so is there anything else, you know, are there other things that kind of come to mind for you as things, man, you would, you would hope that every Christian would kind of take away from the first couple of chapters of Genesis? Yeah. The, the one other thing that I, I thought of is, uh, is uh, I was reflecting on this before we started recording is anytime we preach on the old Testament, what I long for folks to see is Christ, that uh, the, the one overarching story over all of Scripture is the gospel. That, and Genesis, what a place to, to, to show that, right? Where it's first promised, and, and then seeing that promise then weave through everything. Uh, so I really do hope that, uh, that our folks here at the church have clearly been able to see Jesus at so many terms throughout the book of Genesis. To fight against that idea that you brought up, that... The God of the Old Testament is not different than the God of the New Testament. Uh, that uh, that, that the, God, the God who is gracious and merciful and pours out his love for us through Jesus Christ in the New Testament was doing that stuff all throughout the Old Testament. Right? And, uh, and it, it's such a mistake for us or for anyone else to, to miss that in, in the text of the Old Testament, particularly uh, for us, particularly now in the book of Genesis, to miss the fact that, that Christ is on display, that as God begins to form his people, right, to, to, to begin the nation of Israel and his chosen people, God is doing things all along the way to prepare them for Jesus. He's giving them glimpses of, of what he's going to do himself to bring redemption uh, to them. He's continually showing them the idea of grace and forgiveness. We've painfully missed this in our culture. We, we think that discipline of any kind, that, that rebuke of any kind, automatically means not love. Right? That, that, if, that if I rebuke or I exhort or I discipline you in some way, that then that means I don't love you that that's not grace, right? And that, that's, going back to kids, that's just not how it works, right? For me not to discipline my kids, for me not to exhort them at times when they need it, for me to allow them to do whatever it is that they want to do is, is hate, right? That is wrath towards them, right? Uh, grace towards them oftentimes includes correction but not exclusively correction. And we don't see exclusively correction in Genesis, but we do see correction. We see discipline. We see God's wrath in Genesis, but we absolutely see his, his tender mercy all over the place. And all of those things point us to Christ. So, uh, so I would long for us always as a church, particularly when we're studying the, the Old Testament, to see the continuity of Scripture, to, to see that this is a living and active word God's actual word to us, and that because he has designed it, and he is the one who has put it together for us, that it all connects, right? that, there is, that there is a beautiful cohesiveness to, to what God has given us in Scripture, and, 
in Genesis so regularly points us to the New Testament and, and, and who God has shown himself to be through the person and work of Jesus Christ and through the giving of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, so let's switch gears just a little bit. I guess I just want to uh, talk a little bit about faith uh, and culture. So uh, let's start with this quote. So Spurgeon said this, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. And so we talked about that a little bit uh, already within kind of the story uh, of Lot and how close he was to Sodom. Uh, we see that kind of in, in Jacob in just a couple of weeks ago with his dealing uh, with uh, his daughter. And uh, we're constantly seeing kind of these pictures pop up uh, not only in Genesis, but all throughout scripture that uh, this, this wrestle with uh, being in the world, you know, and not of it, uh, of being sanctified, wholly set apart uh, for, for God's use, but still having to deal uh, with the continual presence uh, of sin. Um, and so uh, kind of one of the failures uh, of uh, kind of the, of the church uh, right now um, really uh, is kind of this struggle, uh, that the struggle where we're allowing for the world to kind of speak in uh, on church things. And there have been some churches that have said, man, like, let's, let's lessen this. Let's conform. Let's, let's be a little bit more open and progressive in the way. And because of those things, some theology has changed. We've given up certain in certain areas. I'm being very general right now, just because I don't want to go after anybody uh, specifically yet. Uh, but uh, th these conversations are happening, right? This is, this is going on. These conversations are happening all over America right now, particularly dealing uh, with the election that's getting ready to come up, dealing with Black Lives Matters, dealing with the freaking coronavirus. Like, th this is happening all the time. Like, who are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to God on this stuff? And you're gonna, or are you going to listen to the world? Well, if God just talked about the coronavirus in Revelation, it would be all good, right? And this would be super easy. Uh, but we're left to deal with uh, biblical principles and engaging this. And so what kind of what I want to do here is I want to think about kind of your past and your history because you had uh, a part of your kind of life story, your story in ministry where kind of it took a turn where like you're trying to figure out how to effectively engage the world, uh, effectively preach to Christians and the world speaking in on that. Um, and so you kind of tell us a little bit of background about that and then let, let, let that kind of add uh, boundaries for kind of this conversation about kind of the world and the church and the balance, the struggle that's happening there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the real temptation here is to go into everything that's happening in 2020. Yeah. Right. Um, but we ain't got enough time because yeah, we're 43 minutes in. <laughs> that's, that's, that's coming. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we will talk about these things, uh, I'm sure, uh, in, in future episodes. Uh, but let, let me just say this as an overarching to what's both happening in 2020 and my, my own uh, history, that, that the church is weak, that, that, that largely over, over the last 70 years in the United States, that, that the church is incredibly weak. And I said it having been a leader in the church for a decent amount of, of time now. Um, as soon as the church begins to abandon God's word and a, and a bold commitment to God's word, the church really shows its true colors right? and how easily it acquiesces to what the world wants us to be. And my, my own experience with this started around 2005, maybe a little bit before that with what was, what was called back then the emergent church movement. So I really came to faith in, in the Reformed church and the Presbyterian church. I didn't grow up in the Presbyterian church. I grew up in, in, a, in a Grace Brethren church. But, but I really started coming to faith. Like I, I really believe that my heart was, was regenerated uh, in college uh, as I was at a Reformed school, going to a Reformed church. And that's where so much of my formation happened. And I came out of that place zealous for what the Lord had graciously taught me and, and shown me in my studies, both in, graduate, in undergraduate and in graduate school, and, and went to a, a, a church ready to put those things into practice. And uh, what was beginning to creep up at that time was what was known as the emergent church. And the emergent church was largely based on conversation. Right? It is a desire to reach out to neighbor, good intention, right? Good, 
good heart there of wanting to reach out to neighbor uh, through conversation. Right? That, uh, that let's put away our dogmatism. Let's, let's put away our, uh, our bold stands on uh, doctrinal points for the sake of just talking about Jesus. Let's just talk about Jesus with people. Let's leave, let's leave all of these doctrinal statements to the, to the sides, right? And let's just embrace and, and sit alongside and, and be with folks and try to ask questions and, and hopefully at some point, okie doking with Jesus. Right? And there was a lot of appealing to this for me as I'm working with students and, and young adults at, at the time many of whom who are skeptics and, uh, and uh, dissatisfied with the church and disillusioned with the church and m- many even having been hurt by the church in, in different ways. This idea of, hey, let's get rid of the things that divide us and let's just have open conversation and love each other while we do it. And then let's maybe sprinkle a little, sprinkle a little Jesus on top at the end because that's what will give it the flavor. Uh, then, then let's do that. And I read so much from the emergent church and I was kind of in at the early stages. And I remember going to several emergent church conferences where it was a very small number of us. And I'm sitting in a room with kind of the big names of the emergent church movement, like wh- whether it's guys like Rob Bell, or Brian McLaren, Doug Paget, Tony Jones, these guys, right. And I'm getting to rub elbows with these guys. And like did, that. You get, did you give them your card? I, I didn't even have a card. <laughs> there was no, no card. No. No. That, that was too non That was that was too mainline. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, so, so I mean, you felt you felt good about yourself, right? These guys are writing books. They're speaking all over the country. This new movement is starting that has momentum. Uh, I remember one of the conferences that we had was at Yale, right? So just being on Yale's campus makes you feel smarter. And Miroslav Volf was a professor there who, who was our keynote speaker and we got to sit and have dinner with him and we were, uh, we read a couple of his books in preparation for the conference and like it, it just all felt right to me. Volf, largely a, a liberation theology guy, and okay. if you could even call him uh, that, but that's, that's definitely where he dabbled. And uh, So I lived in this world for several years, right? And, and that was the methodology then that I brought to the, the church that I was pastoring. Right? We're, we're, we're reading a new kind of Christian by McLaren, Blue Light Jazz uh, by Donald Miller and, uh, and Velvet Elvis by, by Rob Bell. And we're consuming NUMA videos like it's, like it's candy. And like we are, we are head first into, into this stuff. I am head first into this stuff. And then I, I remember uh, being at one of these small gatherings and the, the conversation came up of at what point do we tell the people that we're interacting with what is true and what is not? That was a, that was a legitimate question. At what point in the relationship do we let them in on what we believe to be true and what we believe is false? And the, the, the overall atmosphere of the room at that point was just crickets. No one even really attempted to answer that question. And then after what seemed like a decent amount of silence came, came the, this thought. Why do we ever need to? Let's allow the Holy Spirit to do the work that the Holy Spirit will do. But there's no need for us to define what is really true or not. And that was like my Damascus Road moment, again, fully by God's grace. It hit me like a wrecking ball upside the head of what in the world am I doing? This just got a little weird. Yeah, what, what is this? <laughs> yeah. right? this, is, this is this formless blob that is actually leading folks nowhere. Right? We're creating friends. We're drinking a lot of beer. Right? Maybe getting some tattoos and things like that. Like, so like those types of things are happening. Right? A, a lot of feeling good about ourselves because maybe we have more non-Christian friends than we've ever had before. Okay? But we're not leading folks anywhere. 
right? We're actually blinding them more, right? We're allowing them to live in even deeper in to the lies that they believe, into the, the false hopes that they are pursuing. In fact, we're even teaching them that they can have Jesus alongside of those false hopes. That you don't have to give up really anything in order to follow Jesus. Just, just love Jesus in addition to everything else that you're loving, right? Jesus is an appetizer alongside of your good meal, right? Or meal that's going to kill you. And at that, at that point, hopefully, the Damascus Road is like one that's blasphemous. Like, I think when you, when you put it in, in that way with, with that type of imagery, I think we should all see that it's blasphemous. But I think I, I want to kind of at, at this form maybe too, too much that, that the systematization uh, of theology and doctrine has become so kind of to a T that we don't leave enough room for God to do his work and for people to actually experience it. Maybe that's a feeling. My guess is that's a feeling. I know that when I was in college and some of these emergent church or, um, conversations were happening, that was, that was what was wrong is that sometimes doctrine and churches that push too much doctrine create a box around people and they don't allow for people to fully experience the, the full God of the universe who truly is vast. Uh, and so, so where kind of in that conversation do you find this is where it's gone wrong? This is where kind of instead of actually leading people down a road to see the beauty of God, you've now just taken them completely off the road. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good qu question that really you have to wrestle with. And before I answer what's wrong with it, I just want to speak to what was good, right? That the desire to know neighbor and, and the desire to pursue conversations with folks who don't know who Jesus is, which, which was really the, the primary appealing thing to me at the beginning stages of that, I still think is a really good thing. And that was a correction to what? Did they, did they I think that, that's a correction to isolation, right? To bubbling, uh, to, to the, the church trying to insulate itself from the world, right? That again, there's overcorrection either way. We've already used that, that, that terminology. That there's an overcorrection when we see how, how bad the world is, well, let's just insulate. Let's create as thick of a bubble as we can around ourselves, around our kids, around everything else, so that the infection doesn't get in, right? But then there's the overcorrection the other way of, let's live so openly and so in the midst of the world that there's actually nothing that distinguishes us from it, right? So like so much else that, that, that you and I often wrestle with in terms of just Christian living, there's this balance that God continues to, to work on in us of what does it look like to boldly stand on God's word and the right doctrines of the Christian faith and then see how that propels us outward. And here's how I know that that's right is because this is exactly what Scripture tells us. Right? This is what Paul talks about to the church in Corinth. Paul stands on right doctrine. In fact, he's trying to correct wrong doctrine in the church, and at the same time is telling them, you best be out proclaiming Christ to the world. Right? So these things have to live alongside of each other, and not only do they have to, God has equipped us to make that happen, right? so that we can boldly stand on his word as truth and the right doctrines of the Christian faith and see how those things propel us not to insulate, to find comfort within the, the body of Christ, nourishment within the body of Christ, a rejuvenation within the body of Christ, a training there that then pushes us to our, our neighborhoods, our schools, our businesses, right? all of those things in the name of Christ, right? trying to, to, to help a lost world who's relying on faulty ideology to actually see truth in God's word and in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, so, uh, so, so what's so wrong with, uh, with the notion of getting so close to the world that you can't distinguish from it? Or my, my time in the emergent church movement is knowing God rightly without right doctrine is fallacious. It's actually absurd. Right? I can't know you rightly right? unless I know exactly who you are. Right? It, the more I come to know who you as Mike are is, right? 
the more I come to appreciate who you are, the more I know you rightly. Right? The same is true with God. We cannot separate doctrine from our knowing of him. And we cannot separate that then from trying to tell others about him. The, the right knowing of God is, is, is unbreakable from who God actually is. So, so the, the efforts to try to put aside doctrine simply for the sake of, of helping folks come to know who Christ is, is, is idiotic. It, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Yet it continues to be, while the emergent church, I don't think, is much of anything anymore, this continues to be what, what the, the large, larger church culture in America does. Well, you, you, want, you want dating, but you don't want marriage. Yeah. So like in, in dating, there, there is, whether people say it or not, there is facade. There, there is kind of this face that I put on that I long for you to see. I allow you for you to come in to a certain depth, but I don't allow you to go too far. Within marriage, that depth gets broken down within the covenant of marriage. And for a lot of people, that's when things start going bad. It was just like... I got married and this person was completely different. And it's like, welcome to it. Like you've now walking through the wicked gate. Like you're, you're, you're in it. You're in it now. And what you're beginning to find is something that's far greater. And so for, for the emergent church, seemingly kind of in what you're talking about and for a lot of churches today, it's like, no, no, we only want to just date. We want the world to only see what we deem as people in our, or not even what we deem, what the world deems is good. And we don't want them to see what is anti their sinful flesh, because that's really what people would call as bad in who God is, is that the doctrines that really make me uh, uncomfortable is when God is completely in control and I am out of control. Those are the things that really make me uncomfortable. And so that's that's a lot of the places I think that the, the church kind of in these overcorrection movements is trying to get away from are these these places where people feel as if like, oh, somebody is in control of all that's happening. Somebody is stronger or greater or more holy uh, than I am, completely different uh, than I am, which you can do that, but there is no joy within that. Like th that, that dating gets really, really tiring. That's not actually true faith. That's not walking with Christ and what God has longed for and what has what he has sent out and intended kind of within scripture. And so, yeah, it, it is, it is a, an overcorrection that I think in my mind makes sense. Like I, I think I get it, um, but it is, it is like we've already said, it is kind of hateful that I'm going to offer you dating Jesus, but I'm never going to allow for you marriage. Though marriage does truly come with trouble, there is far greater joy within it than just in dating. You know, if we just continue to extend that analogy, there's greater intimacy that's prepared, you know, and so. Well, this is even Bunyan's analogy uh, in the Pilgrim's Progress, right? That the, the Christian thinks he has burdens leading up to the wicked gate and that it's at that point of coming to know who Jesus is and surrendering those things to him that all of his troubles are going to go away and then he comes through the wicked gate and then that's really when the troubles start, right? So, so, so while his burden is taken, his journey really is just beginning and the difficulties of what lies ahead in terms of genuinely knowing Christ and navigating a world that doesn't love him presents to us some significant hardships. So I want to ask you one more question. So we're right at an hour. I think yeah. this is probably a good place for us to stop. All right, so so the last question for me is, so if that is the case, all right, with all that's been said this far, all right, that once you pass through the wicked gate, there is more trouble. This is probably what most Christians have already experienced. Why continue, right? So like I, these, this is like when I get up to preach sometimes and like the word has hit me hard in the week, I'm like, I should just stop. Like this is this isn't going well. Like, <laughs> like, God, you've been so good, but I think I failed, and so I think I I'm I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna, I'm walk out of this thing. I think we would both be better if we parted ways, you know. So like this is this is sometimes I think what Christians feel like. So why continue? Yeah, well, this should be why we preach. Right? This this should be why the church exists. This is why the nurturing and nourishment that's found in weekly worship on the Lord's Day together and, and fellowship with the saints is so vital is because of the joy, right? You, you continue the journey because of the joy. And in the midst of the world, it's so easy for that joy to get lost, right? It's like, it, it, like 
if you go out to approach your day and you're like, this day is going to be awesome and you're, you are ready to, to go uh, for the day. And then like you come out in your car and there's, there's frost on the windshield, right? And there's, there's this, this blurriness to what's out in front of you, right? That's, that's sometimes how the world presents or how the world begins to cover up the joy that we are meant to see uh, from, from this journey with Christ. And it, it, you've got to remove that. And that's what the study of God's word does. That's what worship does. That's what fellowship does. But you, you continue that journey because of the joy that is, is promised. But also, not just the joy that's promised. And, and for me personally, for you, for our church, uh, for, for anyone else who would maybe listen to this craziness, uh, right, that what it's not just the joy, it's the joy that we've tasted. Right? That's, a, that's important. Remembering is important. We've talked about that in Genesis as well. The, the remembering is vital for us as followers of Christ. We have to continually be a people who reflect, who, who, who have mindset backwards to what Christ has already done for us, in us, and through us. How he has allowed us to taste these morsels of joy day by day sometimes, sometimes it's month by month, right? Maybe maybe even longer periods of time than that that, 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 we, that, that we get taste sparingly. But, but we have to be a reflecting people so that those remembrances of how we've already tasted joy propel us in those moments when we're not tasting it or those moments that get really hard, and, and the joy is is made difficult to see. Right? I, I get so annoyed in, in the morning, like particularly this time of year. Like I don't know if it's my car, if this is everybody's car. Like I'll, there'll be dew on the windshield, and I'll flip the the, the the wipers on, and it'll go, and it'll be gone. And then like a half a second later, it's back. Right, and then I do it again, and it's like. I have to drive for like 10 or 15 minutes before I'm not constantly like squinting out of my, uh, my, my window and, and have the wipers on full blast because the dew won't go away. Those are the things where I'm like, we're not as advanced as we think we are because we should have figured that <laughs> yeah, out why already. Why can't we yeah, do this? My glass yeah. should be different. Like I'm not a car guy, so there's probably some sort of secret <laughs> maybe to this, but I haven't found it if it is. And it's so frustrating. Right? It's just like, I just wiped it off. Why is it back already? Why does it take so long for this this stuff to to to, to get away from my vision so that I can see? This is it's a good analogy for me as I think about how the joy oftentimes gets skewed for us. Right? I know that the world is out there. Like I know that clarity is coming in the morning. Ten or fifteen minutes into my ride, I'm not going to have to have the wipers going like crazy. I'm not going to have to be squinting through the windshield. But I still get frustrated in, in the midst of that. Uh, and that's oftentimes like the journey of of walking through the wicked gate, right? That that that, that joy is is made less and less visible at times, and, and we can even be trying to see it, and it's just not coming. But because of what we've experienced previously, we know that more joy is coming, yeah. and, uh, and and this is what has to propel us. That the, the fact that God has shown us His faithfulness in Christ in order that we might know him and the joy that comes from following him. That, that through that, we would be able to say along with Paul, I consider all things a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. You know I was going to work in my favorite verse. Oh, of course, yeah. In, in, in our first I'll surprise you had yet. Yeah. Um, but like, that, like that, that's promised to us, right? That's not just what Paul thought. Right? That's what anyone whose heart has been made new by the working of the Holy Spirit, gets to taste that Jesus is better. Well, that's that is that is what Jesus is meant for us. So in Hebrews 12, 2, you know, when it says for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He now is the new Adam. He he is the all right, it begins here now, the prototype for how you're meant to live this life. And through kind of this wicked gate, through pain, through suffering, through greater trouble, he continued to endure because of the joy that was set before him. This is the prototype that we get, you know, in, in the life of Jesus. And this is why we see it in Peter. We see it in Paul. How do these guys continue to do it? Why are they rejoicing? Well, because they're following the prototype. They, they, they've seen what it looks like to live this life well. And pain was a part, about, of, a, was a part of it. And so they know you can't get away from it. They know that it's a part of it. 
uh, part of this whole thing until they're going to walk right through it. And that's why they didn't sit back and just let the Spirit do the work. Yeah. Right? Because they couldn't. Right? They were overcome with who, who Jesus was to them, what he had done in them, what the Spirit was, was working in them. Right? And, and so we, we don't go to this, this, this hyper-sovereignty view of we're just going to sit back and allow the Holy Spirit to do whatever he's going to do. Because Scripture shows us that the Spirit works through means. Right? The Spirit doesn't have to work through means. There are moments that, that, that the Spirit just shows up and, and smacks somebody upside the head and, and lets them know who, who God is in a powerful way. But generally, the Spirit is working through means. And this was another issue with, with both the emergent church and the church today. Right? We have to remember that we often are the means, that the church is the means that God has, has ultimately promised to use and work through a people who have been established in joy to now bring that joy to the world. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. All right, cool. Well, let's let's go ahead and finish like this. Let's read uh, Romans chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace into which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through his Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. That's Amen. what we long for uh, from uh, those listening to this podcast. That's what we long for in our own lives and the lives of our families, and so may you be blessed uh, by the words that were spoken, go read your Bibles because this ain't enough.